Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Doug Judy, and this is a really big conversation. It's one of those visionary, out of the exam room kind of conversations about literally how to change the world. So we'll start with the introduction and then dive right into the conversation. Dr. Judy is an executive director of the Build Healthy Places Network, a national organization with a mission to transform the way organizations work together across the health, community, development, and finance sectors to more effectively reduce poverty, advance racial equity, and improve health in neighborhoods across the United States. Dr. Judy sits on the Board of Trustees for Mercy Housing, a national nonprofit affordable housing developer and is a member of the Health Advisory Committee for Enterprise Community Partners, one of the country's largest community development financial institutions. He is also a member of Common Spirit Health's Community Economic Initiatives Committee and Trinity Health's Socially Responsible Investment Advisory Group. He has been a leader in the Federal Reserve Bank and Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Healthy Communities Initiative, which has convened over 40 cross-sector gatherings throughout the country since 2010. Prior to founding the network, Dr. Judy worked as a pediatrician for nearly 20 years in low-income community clinics and as a neonatal hospitalist. He was an associate professor at UC Berkeley at the School of Public Health. He has published in a number of prominent scientific journals, including Pediatrics Epidemiology, the American Journal of Public Health and Health Affairs. Dr. Judy received his BA from Cornell University, MD from Harvard Medical School, and MPH from UC Berkeley. He trained in pediatrics at Stanford University and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in population health at UC San Francisco through the Robert Wood Johnson Health Foundation. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Doug Judy. Hi, Doug. How are you? I'm good, Leah. How are you doing? I'm, I'm really doing well, and I'm so delighted to have you join me today. And I think this is a really important and interesting topic that I'm guessing most pediatric clinicians haven't really thought much about. So, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Yeah. So I wanted to get started, as I do, is just tell me a little bit about your backstory and how did you get into pediatrics? Yeah. Uh, again, thank you for having me. So I actually grew up on a farm in Ohio and did decide that I wanted to go to medical school rather than become a botanist. I was a botany major in college, which is sort of funny and definitely had no intent at all of going into pediatrics. However, when I did my pediatrics rotation uh, in medical school, I still remember the first night that I was on call and they were rolling the next patient out for it to admit. And I was kind of dreading it. Right. And, uh, they roll the uh, gurney out of the elevator and it's rolling out, rolling out. There's no one on it. There's no one on it. And then it was a little one-year-old with a asthmatic attack or a RSV struggling to breathe and the terrified parents. And 
I was just really drawn to that. Like I realized that helping that child and that family was really going to be important to me. And uh, would get me up in the middle of the night is the way I used to think about it. And it was interesting too, because shortly after that, I had, I think I'd gone into medical school wanting to be an uh, internist, internal medicine, thinking that that's what smart doctors did, right? And when I did my rotation at Children's Hospital in Boston, I remember clearly being struck by the fact that all the pediatricians name tags said medicine on them because they're at a children's hospital. It would be redundant to say pediatrician. It was medicine. I was like, oh my gosh, this is medicine for children, of course. And in fact, we have it more complicated because they change size over time, right? So, so it's actually as or more fascinating than any other part of medicine. So that's how I ended up in pediatrics. Yeah, I, I did a podcast with Michael Klein, who's a pediatric surgeon out of Detroit, and he was running for AAP president-elect back in the day. And he did this great talk, and, and I have actually, it was um, December of, I think, 2020. Anyway, he talked about how he thinks pediatricians are the best people in the world because we have a really hard job. So I loved that. And I, I too love pediatrics. And I'm not sure that it's that far from botany because you're interested in growing things. So, right, exactly. You, you know, and a lot of them don't talk to you. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the roots and shoots and, and yeah. successful, uh, successful growth. So, that seems to be a good metaphor. Well, you're now the executive director of Build Healthy Places Network. And how did you make that pivot from clinical care? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it was definitely not immediate or linear. I think that's what's most important when you end up in another field is, is these things sometimes look straightforward in the past, but not necessarily uh, at the time. But I finished my residency training and was a primary care pediatrician in uh, California and uh, working in a very low-income community and just realized that the medical training I had wasn't all that these children needed. A lot of what was driving their poor health was were things that were outside of my control. So things like violence in the neighborhood and a lack of safe food and quality housing. And it was quite a shock because, you know, at this point I had decades of education of different types. and. So I realized I really wanted to better understand what it was that I was seeing. And, you know, this is 20, almost 25 years ago. So this is before the language of social determinants of health, which is now really routine. And so I did a public health degree at UC Berkeley and then followed that with a uh, fellowship in uh, what was new at the time, health, uh, population health and social determinants of health. So I really started to think a lot more about the context uh, that children and families are living in and, and better understanding these social determinants of health that I was seeing. And, you know, eventually was a, I started teaching at UC Berkeley in the School of Public Health as a professor, but I did continue my clinical work. So I continued both early on as in um, urgent care, but also uh, neonatology So or um, uh, really a neonatal hospitalist. So I was working in NICUs sort of to support my public health habit is the way I sometimes thought about it. And yeah, I, I learned about this field of community development, actually, coincidentally, through my now husband, who was a researcher in economic history around affordable housing. And initially, I didn't see any connection. And then over time, we started to realize that his colleagues that were doing investment in low-income neighborhoods were, in fact, addressing social determinants of health. My colleagues in public health and medicine didn't know his work or his colleagues his colleagues didn't think about what they did in terms of health. They really thought about it more in terms of 
revitalization and neighbor, you know, it was really about neighborhood investments. And so we started bringing these folks together at conferences, initially through the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, where he was working at the time. And over time, what we saw was everybody just got along really well. They had the same mindset about how do we help low-income communities live up to their potential and the families and residents that live there. And so all that being said, I was able to eventually, um, through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, get uh, initial funding to start the Build Healthy Places Network. Then initially I ran part-time and over time it became, it's become bigger and uh, longer term. This is about eight, nine years ago to where this is now my full-time job. I love this story on so many levels. I mean, one is your curiosity about, wait a minute, maybe there's something else that needs to happen here to help children. Mm-hmm. And putting these pieces together and connecting with other people. But I mean, what about your, like, I don't know, you're doing this whole other career while you're doing neonatal hospitalists. I mean, anybody who doesn't think pediatricians are smart enough, I mean, I beg to differ. I mean, it's just, it's such a cool story. And then making the sleep. I mean, you were a maverick. You were like way ahead of the curve when it came to thinking about this. And I just remember recently there was a, and I believe it was at Cincinnati Children's where they connected families with legal folks to, to oh, provide yeah. legal support and it mm-hmm. increased their health outcomes yeah. because they were dealing with housing issues and that, you know, it's just like, we can't go it alone. Right. Yep. Yeah. There's the medical legal partnership is one. And there's also now a, a new sort of building on that, a medical financial partnership where they actually, in both cases bring legal help or financial supports into the pediatrician's offices to help the families there either get legal support they need or support in sort of reorganizing their finances or getting a savings account or getting banked, that kind of thing. Gosh, it's just, I love the creativity of it, the, you know, (laughs) sort of the bubbling up of minds. So, well, can you describe a little bit about what the goals and missions are of Build Healthy Places Network? Yeah. So officially our mission is to transform the way organizations work together across the health, community development, and finance sectors to more effectively reduce poverty, advance racial equity, and improve health in neighborhoods across the United States. So that's saying a lot. That's (laughs) a big chunk. (laughs) It's a big chunk. But the goal really is twofold. The the underlying goal of that is to increase awareness and knowledge of the work and shared interests across sectors and to provide tools, uh, in some cases, direct technical support to actually begin the process of collaboration. So the goal is really to increase thoughtful investments into low-income communities in order to revitalize them and support the the well-being and health of uh, these neighborhoods, often neighborhoods that have been marginalized for a long time. And so the the health and racial equity component is embedded in that. And so we, we do that really through two main approaches. One is what we call field building. And so that's really about our the storytelling we do, the tools and resources that we uh, put together so we speak a lot at conferences and it's funny, like I am as a physician, I'm often at banking conferences or real estate conferences, you know, it's the only doctor there, but we also speak at public health and medical conferences or organized panels where we bring community development organizations or nonprofit banks in to speak to the, the health folks because they have never heard of these people usually. And we do webinars, publications, newsletter. And then the place-based work is the other part of it. So the field building and the place-based, and that's really about providing more direct assistance 
to healthcare organizations, to community development organizations, either through grant or through uh, direct advisory services to help them actually begin to talk to one another. Because those initial conversations can sometimes be difficult because they the, the two sides often think very differently about uh, the work they do. I imagine really differently. I'm curious about how do you bring in the folks that live in these neighborhoods so that it's sort of like people aren't doing something to them, for them, but with mm-hmm. them yeah. and that they're part of that? How, how do you do that? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And in fact, uh, we are currently, fingers crossed, in the last stages of getting a new round of funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And that specific question is going to be one of the areas we focus on. What are the best practices for community engagement? And specifically, how do we increase community ownership and community leadership? So we haven't focused on it so much in the past. It's more because we we tend to be working with uh, slightly higher levels of organizations, especially the field building is going to be more uh, about organizational level or even umbrella organizations like national, like the American Academy of Pediatrics, as opposed to a pediatrician in the office. So we're definitely in the position to encourage and support and sort of have an expectation that the community be involved in these conversations when we support that. Our place-based work, where we're actually working with healthcare and community development. In those cases, we very much lay out expectations of what it is that we hope to see. And it's got to be more than it. Certainly things like community gatherings and stuff are critical, but it gets very complicated. Who, who represents the community? Who is the community? Some communities are quite complex because they have different groups within them. And so that's why we want to focus more on how to do that really well. And there are some, some folks have begin to model what true community ownership and community leadership looks like. Yeah, it sounds sounds complicated, but exciting and, and sounds like there's so much opportunity. Well, I was reflecting on the statement that you sometimes hear that zip code is more important than genetic code for determining health mm-hmm. outcomes. And what meaning does that hold for kids? Well, it's funny. We, we say it sort of, it, it's a nice shorthand. Zip code is more important than genetic code. But, you know, you think about, at least in my training, you know, I would very, very carefully take a family history. And I knew generally where the family lived, but I didn't know exactly where they lived. Like literally, where did they live? What was their day-to-day environment? And yet now the the research really shows that where you live, your neighborhood really plays a much larger role in your health than even your genetics, which I think is, that's one of the things that becomes a little hard for us as physicians to really wrap our heads around because that's not sort of the way we've been trained. You know, and it kind of relates to this issue of tackling poverty because that language of zip code is really embedding the idea of context, of place-based drivers of health, of neighborhood impact. But we, if we talk about poverty narrowly, we think about it just as family's income. And thus the solution is to raise their income above a certain threshold. And now they're, they no longer meet the definition of poverty. The problem is most low-income people live in places that are low-income and don't have the same resources. And so you can imagine you've increased the family income somewhat, which is a good thing by all means, but they still don't have access to healthy food, safe outdoor spaces to play or to to move about. The housing quality is still bad. Transportation to jobs and services is often lacking in these marginalized neighborhoods. Schools aren't very good. There's no childcare, there's no early enrichment. So it's it's a both and. And so that's where in my mind, you have to really tackle both. And so by our working more with community development organizations that actually focus on the neighborhood part, we pair that with policies that help increase families' income. 
we begin to really tackle the, the sort of joint drivers of poverty and poor health. Well, and it makes me think about that there is a really tight connection when I think about, you know, adverse childhood experiences, toxic oh, yeah. stress, and then epigenetics that those difficult experiences then can impact our genetics. So maybe there is a, a tighter mm-hmm. tie, you know? Yeah. You know, I often, when I speak publicly, I often use a map and I happen to have a map of Los Angeles County, but it's a heat map. Uh, one of the heat maps is by city communities that have high levels of population struggle to pay their rent. So it's, it's income insecurity and certain towns light up and other towns don't. And then there's a map of childhood obesity which towns do have high obesity rates in children, which are obviously a marker for a whole range of health problems. The two maps are identical. And so you've got the community development organizations, the anti-poverty folks are focused on the income level and the health folks are focusing on the health, but they're literally the same neighborhoods. And so we need to overcome that. And you, those maps, as you said, can be really helpful in realizing that we're talking about the same people. Yeah. The roots are interconnected. Mm -hmm. I mean, in such important ways that it almost is like you can't fix one without the other. Yeah, I mean, you can try, but Mm -hmm. you know, that concept of, I love what you said. It's where is the day-to-day environment? Where is that? What is that home look like in the Mm -hmm. house next door and the houses next to that? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so what are the components of a vibrant community? I mean, if you could do like, you know, best case scenario, what, what does that look like? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I mentioned the social determinants of health before, and that term is getting old and like a lot of terms, they can lose their focus over time. So I, I increasingly the, the language of social determinants of health implies that the determinants are all social, but it's more than that. It's, it's both the social context and the physical context uh, people live in. And so I actually think one of the best resources I've seen that really describes what's necessary for a vibrant neighborhood and a vibrant life is something called the vital conditions. So there's a report called the Thriving Together Springboard. It's at thriving.us. And this was put together by Rethink Health, um, along with the Wellbeing Trust, Community Commons, Wellbeing in the Nation. And what they did a lot of work to do is to identify the seven components that are needed to thrive and really thinking about both social and physical environments. And I like the word thriving too, because it's, it's aspirational and they contrast that with struggling and suffering. So rather than thinking of a poverty line, it's how much are you thriving? Are you struggling, barely getting by, or are you, are you suffering? And, and there's seven, just to say them really quickly, I think is important. So one, one interestingly, and the one they identified as the most powerful, which is not one I think most of us would think about right away is what they call belonging and civic muscle. It's really about having a sense of power in your community and a sense of belonging in your community. You can imagine how powerful that is for one's well-being. Thriving natural world is the second. It's really about green space, basic needs for health and safety. So sort of that's where that sort of healthcare and, and public safety come in. Humane housing is the fourth. Meaningful work and wealth, getting to income and job uh, access. Sixth is lifelong learning. So obviously education, and that's really inclusive from adults all the way down to preschool. And the last is reliable transportation, because often you need transportation to get to these other things, because not everything's in every neighborhood. And so healthcare is in there. So we all as practicing pediatricians have a role in there, but it really highlights that a lot of the other components of what support our health are really these, these other factors. And that if, you know, as we as pediatricians want to support our families and tackle poverty overall, and especially inequitable poverty, 
it's going to require partnering with those who are better positioned to influence some of those other <clears throat> vital conditions. Well, and it sounds like, I mean, I, you just think about most communities, you know, they're sort of like literally the other side of the tracks, you know, you have the yeah. communities where there is concentrated, not necessarily wealth, but you think about, uh, well, that too, but you think about home ownership and you have, you know, shopping that's easily accessible. You have a car, right. you, you have an income, you can take your children to daycare, you know, those things that we sort of take for granted. And then on the other side, I mean, I'm thinking of that book, Evicted, yep. where, you know, you know, I can't make a payment and there's no wiggle room and I pack up everything I have in plastic bags and I'm out in 24 hours. I mean, how does a kid thrive in that? I mean, you can't think about homework when you don't know where you're going to sleep. So are there examples of a community where it was, you know, suffering and then has started to thrive? And are there ways to actually do that? Yeah, the, the the example I often use, and I and you and I have talked about purpose-built communities, and that's for those who are listening uh, to the podcast. That, that's a good organization to just get a sense of. So they they are a, a grant-funded nonprofit that provides technical assistance to communities to holistically revitalize. And so they work with communities that this is this uh, the communities themselves are driving the effort. So this gets back to your earlier question about community engagement. And they focus, unlike a lot of efforts, they focus on several things simultaneously. So they focus on education, child preschool through early adulthood. Uh, They focus on quality housing and actually mixed income housing. So you're not segregating low-income people apart from middle-income people. You're actually creating mixed income housing. And then they focus on what they call community wellness, which they're actually working to fine-tune that. But it's really all the other good stuff. That would be the parks and the grocery stores and the bank branches and all the other things you need to have a functioning neighborhood. And it's a long process, but they're finding that if you focus on those things simultaneously with the community guiding the efforts and using, and we'll talk in a moment about some of the, um, the financial tools and resources that are available you can begin to pull money into these neighborhoods and improve their overall uh, viability there. You really are revitalizing them. And, you know, and this, there is, you're making them more mixed income. So there is a risk of gentrification. And my colleagues that work in this field say plan for success, a neighborhood that has more amenities and is a better neighborhood is by nature going to draw in higher income people. And so to, in order to protect the lower income people, you really need to put boundaries in place so are there certain buildings that are preserved as permanent affordable affordable housing, for example? Are there ways to help people purchase their homes or manage any increased taxes that come? Like plan plan for success, which I think is a nice, nice bit of language. It's interesting. It makes me think of, you know, those equity pictures that you see where, you know, everybody gets the same thing. Yeah. But for folks that are in that lower income bracket, it's like, you actually give them a lift up. I mean, their box Mm -hmm. is higher. And does that mean, you know, you have a break on housing prices because Mm -hmm. in order to lift you, you need that. And then it's not really, I mean, it feels like people might question it as a sense of fairness, Mm -hmm. but it really, it really is. And it, and it makes it stronger, better because Mm -hmm. everybody's lifted. Yeah. And you, you raise an interesting point, which, I think is, I often think about, which is sometimes it can be hard for us to provide services to adults who we feel like are making bad decisions. And yet, if they have children 
who are suffering from those bad decisions, that is shooting ourselves in the foot by not ensuring that that child is, is raised in the most productive way possible. It's also worth remembering, of course, and this is obvious, but that parent that is struggling to make the best decisions was themselves were themselves a child who might well have grown up in a setting that wasn't supportive of them being able to do that. And, you know, as we said, best decisions is, is, is contextual. If you don't have any other choices, you're doing the best you can. And I think sometimes we forget that as well. So I think it's often important to remember that even though it can feel like we're giving some people more, we have to have the long perspective that we want their children to grow up to be not need anything. And that will only happen if we help them right now. It makes me think of, I had a conversation a few podcasts back with Kofi Essel, who Mm -hmm. works on food insecurity and, you know, sort of that bad choices idea that, you Mm -hmm. know, when you go into a store, first of all, maybe it's not a full grocery store and the choices are high carbohydrate foods, highly processed, lots of sugar versus no food. You're going to go with what you can buy. And so is that a poor choice? It might not be the healthiest choice, but you know, you got to do what you got to do to get by. And, yeah, and I used so to tell my, yeah, it's I used like to tell the judgment students, piece in there, right? Yeah, exactly. My medical students, I used to tell them like, look, if a mother has three jobs and very little money and she's got three hungry kids, McDonald's is a really good choice. Super fast, incredibly cheap. Kids are happy and she's off to her next job. And that any of us might do that, actually. It's also worth remembering. We've probably all done that on some days where we just want to like keep the crowd quiet, right? But you can't do it every day. Yeah, I bought Pop-Tarts. <laughs> I never thought I would, but yep, I bought Pop-Tarts. Um, so you mentioned something I think that's really important because this stuff doesn't come for free. So is there money out there or do we have to scramble trying to put something together? Yeah, so that's the most interesting part to me of all of this work is, and what really drew me into it was the sheer scale of finances available for this type of work. So the estimate is well over $300 billion, that's billion with a B, $300 billion a year goes into what I call community development. And again, to reiterate the idea of community development, these are the folks that are building the affordable housing charter schools and low-income communities, daycare centers, uh, grocery stores and food deserts, investing in the places that regular banks are hesitant to go. And through a number of mechanisms, they have all this money. And like I say, it's all addressing what we would call social determinants of health. And yet, generally, that's not the focus because the focus is really on the financial transaction. And the, the reason I think that we don't know about it or hear about it very much is this money is not legislated. It's not part of the regular budget. So we don't hear budget fights between the Democrats and the Republicans around this money because unexpectedly it's mostly legislated and it's taxed. Uh, it's actually, it's not legislated, it's regulatory. So what I mean by that is that ta- there are tax credits. So this goes to the IRS, believe it or not, which provides billions of dollars for the, what's called the low income housing tax credit. No more billions for something called the new markets tax credit, which focuses on job creation in low-income communities. Uh, there's something called the Healthy Food Financing Initiative. Billions of dollars available to build grocery stores and food retailers in low-income neighborhoods. There's something called community development block grants that are standing that go to states and can be used in different ways. And you can kind of hear this is where pediatricians could potentially begin to guide some of these dollars. 
And the big, the big source of this money comes from regulatory uh, work, which is uh, what's called the Community Reinvestment Act. And the Community Reinvestment Act requires banks to invest in low-income neighborhoods that fall within their geography. It's a direct anti-redlining law to ensure that we don't continue to marginalize these neighborhoods. And it's been in place since the uh, 70s. So this is what really drives a lot of this money. And so there is money, but I often like to say that we haven't solved poverty. So we could definitely do it somewhat better. And that's partly, uh, and we'll get to this, to where uh, pedi- pediatricians can play a role. So let me see if I can give an example and tell me if I've got this right. So yeah. say I'm a developer and mm-hmm. I want to build an apartment building in mm-hmm. an urban area. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that I could do that is utilize some of these monies to make sure that some of the units mm-hmm. were at affordable rates. Mm-hmm. So like Section 8 housing, and, mm-hmm. and that actually might allow me access to more funds to make my project happen. Is Do I have that right or is I, do I get, did I get that wrong? Yes, yes. That is exactly what, that's actually what um, a lot of the for-profit affordable housing developers would do. Is they absolutely so if they if they take low income housing tax credits, it requires that the units be preserved, usually for families making less than 60, sometimes 80% of the area median income. And that's protected, I'm uh, forgetting whether it's 15 or 30 years, but for, for a number of for quite some time. So that is absolutely so that that is cash that comes in that helps them reduce the overall cost of the building, which then allows them to charge less for the for the rent. But I'll mention um, in terms of, and this this gets into how pediatricians could potentially work with the sector. It can feel feel a little overwhelming, right? You're talking about billions of dollars, and you know that that's a little overwhelming. But the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of nonprofits that work using these dollars. And so, for example, uh, nationally, there's about four thousand community development corporations. So these are nonprofit local community-run organizations, the name Community Development Corporations, they call them CDCs. So I like to think of them as the other CDCs, not the one in Atlanta, but local CDCs. And that language comes from uh, the 1960s. It was actually Kennedy. Robert Kennedy um, really can't use the language of corporation because it made, it made it feel more substantial than just a community group. And these CDCs use low-income housing tax credits and new, market te- new markets tax credits and community reinvestment dollars to do the work. And it's very community-oriented. Or, or, uh, There's also about a 1,000 community development financial institutions, CDFIs. These are basically nonprofit banks that help bring dollars together so that the communities can use them. Because you can imagine it gets very complicated financially. And there are affordable housing developers. So I think one point in terms of your sort of your scenario of being a developer is are you a for-profit developer or are you a non-profit developer and a lot of the non-profit develop all of these cdcs uh, and cdfis are non-profit and they're all mission driven so their goal is not just to build housing their pure goal is actually to build housing for low-income residents which is so there's actually an affordable housing industry focused specifically on this as opposed to sort of just making a few units affordable, their whole goal is to maximize the affordability long-term. And how do you do that in such a way that it is not creating like the Chicago Cabrini Green, which, you know, the housing projects mm-hmm. where, you know, they were developed, low-income housing, but they it didn't do well. 
Mm-hmm. So how do you avoid that? Yeah. So that's actually, it's funny you mentioned that. That is exactly why this, what we, what I think of as modern community development arose, because it serves as an intermediary between federal dollars and the local community. Cabrini Green and the old projects were built directly by the federal government. These are smaller projects that go through local community development corporations or local uh, nonprofit affordable housing developers and actually are responding to community needs. So that's actually one of the uh, things that's really great. There's a really nice example um, that I love in uh, Oakland, California. Eden Housing is an old, um, a longstanding affordable housing uh, company there. And they were building housing in the, the Japantown area of Oakland. And the population was going to be a lot of tiny little Asian women. And they were talking about putting, um, you know, creating some uh, visuals so the place would feel, have a theme sort of along that population. And the, uh, the little ladies that were going to live there were like, no, 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 I just want lower counters. <laughs> meet my needs. Right. Meet my needs. They're like, I don't, I don't need themes. I need lower counters. That would never happen if the federal government was doing that work directly. But in this case, because it was Eden Housing and they knew the population they were serving, it was actually very easy for them to do. And it just, you know, it's an interesting example of where, because these community development corporations are focused on the needs of the community they, they serve. And that helps keep the size under control. There also is less interest in creating these giant pockets of poverty. Mm-hmm. So that's where the move towards more mixed income housing is quite intentional. And the higher income housing, uh, what they call market rate can subsidize the lower rate units. And you clarify either which units are which, or even better, you just have a mix. And that way no one knows who has a subsidized unit and who doesn't. And that, you know, you can imagine developmentally too, for children, for families, being around people of different income levels is really, really helpful. Well, it's like the kids getting free lunches at school. I mean, if you mm-hmm. make it so that nobody knows who's getting a free lunch, it's right. way better for those kids. So right. that there's not that stigma around it. So this may be going a little bit deep, but I'm thinking just in my own community, how do you make it happen so that communities don't do it on the cheap? Because I've seen in some of our mm-hmm. projects, the mm-hmm. housing is inferior quality, doesn't hold up. And it really becomes then just another blight. So how do you do that differently? Yeah. You know, so it's interesting. One of the reasons the low-income housing tax credit has been so effective, it it has been the root driver of most affordable housing that's been built over the last 40 years. And it tends to be very high quality because these tax credits, this is getting a little into the weeds, but I think it's worth uh, discussing a bit. The government creates the tax credits and actually gives them to the nonprofits. These are slips of paper that are worth a credit on future taxes. Well, the nonprofits don't have future taxes. So what they do is they sell those credits to corporations. So now the corporation gets the future tax credit, and the organization now has the cash on hand right now. The important thing is, and so the, it makes sense because the corporation pays a little bit less. They'll say pay 90% on the dot, 90 cents on the dollar for the future tax credit. So they will in the end make 10% or 5%, but over time. So they're on the hook. And the only way they get the full tax credit over say 15 years is by ensuring that the person who, who they gave the money to is actually serving the population they said they would, that the building is in good repair 
And so it, it brings a, everyone is what we call sort of a network approach. Everybody's monitoring each other a little bit to make sure that they're actually achieving their goals. And in this case, the government is less involved. It actually allows the, those who had the tax credits and those who purchased the tax credits to have an interaction. And so weirdly enough, an organization like Google might have purchased tax credits, but they won't get the full value until the end. And so it makes you want to build a higher quality because you don't want to risk as the tax, as the, as the person purchasing the tax credits, not getting your full return later. There's a accountability, right? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I love, that's very interesting. It sounds really complicated. It's so- very complicated. That's one of the big complaints uh, because you can imagine it, it, it makes these sorts of transactions more complicated and bring in lawyers and stuff. And so they're not as efficient as they probably could be. But this natural, we have also seen how inefficient direct government building and the lack of monitoring. And if you, you know, you zero out future resources for maintenance and you end up with the projects we had years ago. And that's effectively what happened, right? It sounds like there needs to be a cautions and guardrails. So it's not just about the rich getting richer, right? right. You know, like I get a big break, but I don't get a big break unless I do my part. Mm-hmm. And these other groups are doing better, but you know it's just checks and balances. It sounds like yeah, and it, it gets money directly into the nonprofit's hands more quickly and more stably than the government could by actually sort of legislating it and putting it in the budget every year. Right? That's one of the, the tax credits are a, are a bit of a backdoor to achieve this, but but the I think the value of them is they're politically popular because a more conservative mindset says we're giving good corporations that want to help make the world a better place, a tax credit for that. So they're, they're okay with that. And then the more liberal side says, we're getting cash quickly and at large scale into the hands of the communities that actually need the money to the local leaders. So they see value there. And so under the last administration, there was some effort to zero out some of these. And both parties rose up to say, no, no, no. We want to keep, in fact, I think they increased the long-term housing tax credit and the new markets tax credit. So this is a worn a worn phrase, but it is literally a win-win situation. Right? No, it literally is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this brings me to I'm thinking about, you know, these projects are happening, these nonprofits are in the communities. Where do pediatricians, where does pediatric, where does healthcare fit into mm-hmm. how these dollars get spent? I mean, do we have something to lend to this? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I'll mention a few things quickly, but uh, the paper that I published recently in Academic Pediatrics um, really focuses specifically on this question. And we ended with some recommendations and I, we were able to put the, the sort of next steps into four major categories. So education and raising awareness, engaging and advising, advocacy and research. And so just to say very quickly, so the education and raising awareness is really about, you know, can we bring some of this knowledge into residency training, for example, bring community development organizations or leaders to national pediatric conferences? Can we have, so in, in the actual article itself, uh, there are mapping tools that can help a pediatrician sort of see where their neighborhoods and what the strengths and weaknesses of the neighborhoods they work in. We have a lot of resources on our site. So that gets sort of, uh, uh, you know, I think it's about sort of understanding some of the language and getting a sense of the work that this, this, this field does. 
the engaging and advising is sort of the next step in my mind, which is really about finding out which of these organizations work in your community, in your county, in your city, in your community. Consider reaching out, you know, set up a meeting, invite them to come to a meeting that you have, join a board. There's a real opportunity. I mentioned the low-income housing tax credit and the new markets tax credits a couple of times, but those are actually competitive bidding. So the nonprofits that are applying for them benefit by being able to show that the local community is on board and is supportive. And having the local pediatricians or the local hospital could be really a valuable addition. And then I think the flip side is to, especially, you know, if, if you have uh, or work at a local hospital, local healthcare system, have privileges, like ensure that the hospital's community health needs assessments they're required to do actually are engaging the local community development organizations. So it goes both ways. And then in the advocacy, I think, I think pediatricians are really well positioned to make the case, as we were discussing earlier, about the impact of community neighborhood on health of children and families and to help the community development organizations recognize the importance of, of health in their work. And policymakers recognize that to improve health, you probably need to support these sorts of neighborhood investment efforts. And I think doctors sometimes forget how powerful their voices can be, especially outside the normal venue. And so if a physician is, say there's a, a policy coming up about affordable housing or po- funding or land use in your community, and there might be some people saying, we don't want any affordable housing here. A pediatrician could really step up and say, look, like this is actually really critical to this neighborhood. And it, as an unexpected voice, it can be really valuable. And I think too, advocating again, internally, that's sort of externally, internally with local healthcare, are the community benefit dollars being used in ways that actually advance community well-being. And, you know, this is my bugaboo is, you know, community benefit dollars from hospitals being used for health fairs. Yes, important, but is that actually the best way to use some of those resources? Could they be used as a grant that might speed up the development of affordable housing for the community or the development of a grocery store, for example? And then the last one, just very quickly, is research. And I think, because again, there are a lot of research pediatricians as well, is what, what our colleagues on the community development side, they have a lot of the money, as we said, they don't always know what to do first with it. So if they have an opportunity, say a piece of property comes up, should they build affordable housing? Should they build a childcare facility? Should they build a grocery store? Should they combine those? What does the community need? There's less of a strong process to support that. They're really looking to close a transaction quickly, get paid and move on to the next transaction which is good because there's an efficiency there as a financial expertise, but they don't understand sort of child development, family and development, those types of things. And I think too, the research could be valuable to identify what are the benefits? What's the, what are the cost benefits? Making the case, right? So both what are the healthcare savings, but also what are the benefits in terms of reduced special ed needs, of reduced criminality, parents not missing work because their children are healthier, Making that case helps bring in investors, helps convince policymakers, and also identifying what are some of the outcomes, the short, middle, and long-term outcomes, because I think it often shocks people that something like children, their school attendance is a critical short-term marker of how well they're doing. And if you started to monitor that carefully, that you could make the case to investors like, look, we haven't seen differences in health outcomes yet. But children are attending school more effectively. Maybe their grades have gone up. The family hasn't moved as often. They're more stable. Those are really great short-term measures, but more of those would be really valuable. This sounds really fun. I think think we get so 
I mean, you know, as a pediatrician, I mean, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm speaking to like the primary care pediatrician, mm-hmm. I'm in my clinic, I'm doing my thing. I got my ear infection, well visits, you know, I'm doing that one-on-one, mm-hmm. but this allows you to sort of expand your sphere of influence in an even bigger way. And I know that maybe sounds like, oh my gosh, it's just one more thing I have to do. But this sounds like, I mean, at least listening to you, this kind of feeds your soul. I think so. Yeah. I think it's really what drew me partly into this was that some of this, it's slow, but you can have really long-term impacts. If you're helping drive a new uh, community facility in a neighborhood that didn't have it before because you helped weigh in or brought the hospital on board, uh, that can be really valuable and actually be a real legacy and and very quite consistent with our focus on children's health. Well, and I think you said something really important, and I've heard this from other guests is, you know, the power that we have, we underestimate, you know, it's like, I'm just a pediatrician, but uh uh-uh. You know, you're a physician, that doctor title has allowed a lot of power and that we need to use that mm-hmm. for good. And, you know, you said this is a slow process. Well, pediatrics is slow. I mean, it's what, 21 to 25 years that we, you know, we invest in these kids from birth to, you know, hopefully launching in, in some way, shape or form. And I mean, there's nothing more gratifying. I just had this happen yesterday to come into, to run into one of your previous patients and, and they've blossomed, you know, you've seen them, you know, through trials and tribulations, illnesses, challenges, and they're like, you know, this young woman I saw, I mean, she's getting married, she has a job and she bought a house. I'm like, so incredibly proud of her because man, there were some big struggles, you know, that, that was a, you know, 26 year endeavor. So yeah, there's something to be said for that. And I mean, why not jump in where we can make impact, not only in that one-on-one in the exam room, but outside your practice? Yeah. And, you know, Leah, it made me think of something that I think sometimes the work that I am, am sort of encouraging can be a little frustrating to physicians or pediatricians, because it's like, I have a family who has unstable housing right now. What, what can you do? For- the work I do is really with organizations that are going to build housing for the future. There are solutions, they're difficult, but like how you help that family immediately. But what I think about is what about the younger sibling of that patient you're seeing right now? What about that patient now when they grow up to what you're describing and there's still no affordable housing? Like, so it it is a longer term, but it's thinking we both want to help the family right then, but we also want to help make sure that when that need arises again in the future, it's still not the same unchanged setting and it's really doing both. It's thinking both long, short-term and long-term, I think. Well, and for a medical analogy, it's kind of like asthma. I mean, you've got the acute exacerbation mm-hmm. where like I need to give a treatment and short-term steroids to fix the problem right now. So maybe that means on the examples you're giving is, you know, I give the family some resources about food banks where they can get food today. On the other side, when I'm looking at, okay, so what's causing the asthma? Maybe it's uh, dust mites, it's cockroaches, it's some other thing that maybe we can do now to prevent it down the road. So mm-hmm. I yeah. think there are medical analogies to, you know, quick fixes, acute fixes, and then, you know, mm-hmm. chronic endeavors. And well, this is so exciting. I'm so glad that you spent some time with us today because. I don't know. To me, it's, it's very uplifting to know that as a pediatrician, I have the ability to 
really make impact in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. And and I don't have to do it all at the same time. I mean, if I'm a young pediatrician with, you know, three little kids, I, you know, maybe this isn't something you're going to do right now, but mm-hmm. you know, maybe mm-hmm. you'll be in a position to do something later on. And yeah. you know, if nothing else, you can connect with your colleagues who might be in a different place in their mm-hmm. careers. You know, I I think we can all it's like see what you can do. And I'll make sure to put links in the show notes to all these things. I mean, one of the things that you told me about was this heat map. It was like, I didn't even know I could look up how many people in my area rented homes versus owned homes, mm-hmm. um, how many people had cars. Yeah. I, I was fascinated. I, you know, I just didn't know. I mm-hmm. mean, and that was not, that didn't take me a lot of time just to raise my awareness so that maybe with that family that comes in, even if I don't do anything else other than ask them about, tell me how you get places. Mm-hmm. Right, my, right, right. You know, exactly. so knowledge is power, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. well, listen, um, again, thank you for the work that you're doing. It's super exciting. And so if you had to give yourself some advice back when you were a resident, knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind is uh, be patient. Your life kind of rolls out slowly. And I know the medical students I I have taught in the past sometimes wanted to get directly to these bigger things. And I often said to them, look, one of the best ways to be really effective in these other interests is to become a really, really good physician. That gives you the credibility. It gives you the self-confidence to actually do some of these other things, but also hold on to your passions. It can be very hard to hold on to your passions when you're in residency and not sleeping much. Juggling a lot of things is important. And for me, it was juggling multiple jobs because some of the jobs didn't pay well enough. So I continued being a neonatal hospitalist, which I loved and it helped pay, pay my pay my bills. And I think that critically, it's this, your medical training and background and work with families can be really useful in other settings. And I think sometimes we forget that, that that knowledge of human development, of child development, of social context, of population health is really valuable and is goes beyond just simply uh, direct medical care. So it sounds like be smart, be nimble, be flexible, and be passionate. <laughs> be patient. <laughs> be patient. Be patient. That's well, and it's interesting because not only does that maybe it was like a self-talk, you know, be patient, mm-hmm. but also the work you do, it's be patient. You know, this stuff, it takes a while to to turn a ship, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's exactly. not, you know, exactly. just a little paddle in the canoe. <laughs> so, yeah, and starting starting out small, like I like I had mentioned, you know, uh, reach out and say hello to a local community development leader and say, you know, I see patients from uh, this this neighborhood. Do you ever work in that neighborhood? And that right there sets off an interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I mean, I I'm very big on like practical. Like okay, what do I do now? What are, what are the bullet point recommendations? So I'll make sure that I include the link to those four things that you're like. Okay, maybe you're not going to do all of them at the same time, but you know you could start one place. You know, and and reading your article, I think would be a great great start. <laughs> so, and I should tell listeners that Doug and I and Dr. Arthur Lavin are working on a kind of a project to maybe develop an echo project to help pediatricians maybe do some of these things and. So stay tuned and um, we're dreaming. We're, we're starting small, but we're thinking about it. So maybe there are some things that you can get involved in. 
Well, thank you so much, Doug. I, I just so appreciate your time and your energy and enthusiasm and joy that you really are speaking about. And thank you again. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And I encourage anyone who hears this to reach out if they have questions or want to learn more. And I'll make sure I put the information. What's the best place for people to find you? So yeah, it's djudy at buildhealthyplaces.org. And our website is buildhealthyplaces.org. Okay. We'll make sure we put those connections in. Well, have a great day and keep doing the wonderful things that you're doing out there in the world for kids. Thanks so much, Leah. Bye-bye. Okay. Bear with me. I just love these big visionary conversations because it makes me feel like we have the opportunity to change the world. I know that that's sort of maybe pie in the sky, but honestly, we can do this stuff. And it begins with people like us deciding that we can do something differently. So here I'm going to give you a long list of takeaways, but I think they're all important. So get out a pencil and jot these down. So number one, the path to your passion is not linear. Many of our guests have said that. So if you're not doing exactly what you thought you were going to be doing, it's okay. Number two, zip code has more implications on health outcomes for children than genetic code. This is the literal day-to-day environment that surrounds the child. Think housing, food, violence, exposure, poverty, and racism. Number three, lifting out of poverty is not just about lifting an individual or their family, but about lifting the neighborhood. It makes greater impact. Number four, when looking at heat maps for poverty and obesity, there is a perfect overlap with poor neighborhoods. It's all in the same zip codes. Economics impacts health, period. Number five, the mission of Build Healthy Places Network is to transform the way organizations work together across the health, community development, and finance sectors to more effectively reduce poverty, advance racial equity, and improve health in neighborhoods across the United States. Number six, here are the components of a thriving, vibrant community. Belonging and civic muscle. A thriving natural world. Parks, green spaces. Safety. Housing. Economic health. That's jobs and incomes that can actually sustain families. Cradle to grave lifelong learning. And reliable transportation. That one we don't always think about, but so important to access all of the things above. Number seven, there are funds to the tune of 300 billion with a B dollars earmarked for affordable housing, grocery stores, and so much more. Number eight, community development corporations and financial institutions move these funds in complicated ways into both nonprofit and for-profit organizations. And this is where pediatricians can inform how dollars can be spent to best support children and families. We are the experts there. Number nine, this is good return on investment. There are better educational outcomes, less jail time, parents are able to show up at work, and health is better. Number 10, so what does that look like and how do we as pediatricians play a role in what seems overwhelming and, to be perfectly honest, daunting? So I'm going to read this list and, you know, again, bear with me. It's wordy, but it is so important because these are the things that you can do. Just pick one. 
identify potential community development partners, and you can use the partner finder tool that's in the show notes. Join the board or an advisory group of a local community development organization or attend community planning meetings. Engage your state housing authority to explore adding child-friendly criteria to the work they do. Again, you are the expert. Work with the financial organizations to increase their child and family focus. Again, they need to hear from us. If you work in a hospital organization, ensure that community development professionals participate in your hospital's required community health needs assessment and community health improvement plan. Invite a community development leader to meet with pediatricians and hospital leadership. Maybe someone could come to your practice. Number 11, advocacy. Use your title. You cannot imagine the impact it has on policymakers, legislators, when a physician shows up. Leverage your authority and expertise. You are the child expert that needs to be at the table. Number 12. I'm not going to lie, this stuff to me is uber exciting. To think that we have this enormous opportunity to move the needle just by showing up, just by being who you are. You do that every day with kids in your clinics, exam rooms, and hospital rooms. You may not be at a point in your career or your life where sitting on a board is, is feasible. Maybe you have little kids at home. Maybe you're caring for elders. But you can start thinking and asking about the neighborhoods where your patients live. So again, in the world of advocacy, sometimes it's just starting with one thing. Maybe it's writing a letter. Maybe it's showing up at a school board meeting. So many things where you can make an impact. You don't need to do it all, but just think about where can I make change? Thank you so much for listening. And again, I just love this idea that we can harness pediatric clinical expertise and change the world. Be well, and I hope you'll join me next week. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.